Prestige listeners, it's Derek. I'm joined, as always, by my friend, co-host, colleague. Uh, I don't know. How many epithets do you want, Danny? Uh, Danny Bessner. <laughs> I want you to uh, lie and- about the Derek, you thinking that we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's it's a web of lies, actually, on this show. But, uh, you know, we try to pull the wool over everybody's eyes. Uh, we're very lucky to be joined this week by Noah Gordon. Noah is acting co-director of the Sustainability, Climate, and Geopolitics Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, D.C. He's written a piece for Carnegie called uh, How Climate Change Helps Nonviolent or uh, yeah, Helps Violent Non-State Actors. There was a non in there somewhere. Noah, thank you so much for coming on the program. This is a topic that I think uh, we should be addressing more and, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to do it yeah thanks for having me i'm not sure climate helps or hurts non-violent state actors but that's a different well thing. you know we don't really care about the non-violent ones it's the yeah. violent ones we're we're into here on the show can maybe we could start with a little bit of uh, just kind of climate change talk L- regular listeners of the show will know that danny's a you know let the science uh, come in first kind of guy he's he's a big uh uh, big climate. I just, I have a lot of questions, <laughs> you know. I'm just asking questions, Derek. Don't She's just asking insult my inquisitive nature. <laughs> uh, but no, there, you know, there's, there's so much happening already in, in the climate and, and in climate terms of climate change. And we rarely get a chance to talk about it in the show. I, I thought maybe we could just start with a little bit of kind of what's going on in the world right now. There was just a piece in the Washington Post a, a day or two ago as we're recording this about uh, the massive heat wave that's already hit Asia, you know, record high temperatures in Thailand. China's already uh, suffering in many areas. Just maybe, uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the major climate change impacts that we're seeing already in the world right now uh, that that aren't 20 years away as, as this you know, seems to be constantly kind of pushed to the horizon, but are happening today. Sure. I mean, first, I think it's a big picture. I would point, I I would say, you know, to step back and say that it's kind of a mixed picture at the moment. I mean, the worst case climate change predictions from five, 10, 15 years ago do not look like they will come to pass. Um, Back then people worried about four or five degrees of warming, and that now looks unlikely. At the same time, it's extremely unlikely that we will limit warming to 1.5 degrees or below. So the best case scenarios are also gone. And that's, as you say, we are starting to see impacts now. Um, You mentioned some of the extreme heat. I think on on that front, it's interesting to note that we're about to have an El Nino weather pattern, which it's a weather pattern in the Pacific. It generally means that temperatures are warmer and there are more extreme. So in the last few years, we've seen a lot of extreme heat during a La Nina weather pattern. So that could get even worse. Um, Floods is another one to touch on. I was just reading this morning that rice prices are hitting record highs this year. We had some food inflation last year as well. But and a big reason for that is the devastating flooding in China and Pakistan, two big rice producers. So we're starting to see some impacts on food production. We've seen droughts hurting agricultural production in Europe and in the Western US as well. You know, the flooding from hurricanes is worse because of climate change. 
that there's so many different areas to take this. Uh, a lot of this paper is more about the second order effects, but I think you're right that it makes sense to start with the impacts, uh, the wildfires we're seeing, you know, not only is climate change something not just happening in the future, it's also not something that is only a concern for less developed or, or less wealthy states. I mean, we've seen the terrible wildfires in California, sea level rise, um, agricultural impacts. So yeah, th- those are those are the big ones. When you talk about the direct effects, I think is sort of floods, fires and storms. I think that's good, you know, helpful for people to to kind of ground the the rest of the discussion and what we're we're talking about when we talk about how these violent non-state actors could take advantage of some of this stuff is to understand w- what kinds of events we're talking about. Um uh-huh. and the other piece of this of course is the the violent non-state actor. Can you uh, I mean the the definition of this is sort of obvious, but maybe talk a little bit about what these groups look like now you know people i think there's a tendency to view a lot of them you know to to look at the some of the biggest they're they're religious fanatics or they're um you know they fit a certain kind of pattern um that you you argue in the piece i think that that is changing and is going to change because of in part because of climate change but can you talk a little bit about what these vsnas are and and what they might become in the future Sure. Um, this is a very wide-ranging group. I mean, the literature identifies uh, de facto states, insurgencies, criminal groups, warlord-led groups, private security companies, paramilitaries, terrorists, uh, people with guns who don't work for the government and are organized. Um, so in, in the paper, I talk about, you know, large-scale so transnational groups like the Taliban, but also smaller, you know, gangs that may do illegal mining in, in the DRC and then finance terrorist activities in Uganda or just uh, smaller groups of criminals, um, some some narcos in Mexico talking in that case about when violent state actors can step in after after a disaster like a pandemic and provide aid. That's also been the case after flooding in Pakistan, for example. So there's quite a wide range of these groups, and they're different ones in different contexts. So let's get into the the piece and talk about some of the ways that climate change intersects with the activities of these these violent groups. Um, you break this down into to six categories. I want to talk about the first two, um, uh-huh. maybe as a as a unit. Um, and this is kind of basic resource crises that you know get at state capacity, state legitimacy, and the fact that you know as as climate change proceeds and you get more desertification, for example, you you get the creation of more and more inhospitable areas that may be difficult for governments to, to control. Um, talk a little bit about uh, what climate change is going to do to just sort of state capabilities in general. Yeah, I think it makes sense to group these together. And as you say, the first factor is these food, water, and energy crises that undermine state capacity and legitimacy. Um, I think the state gets a lot of legitimacy from steadily improving people's lives, especially in non-democratic states where it's all about output legitimacy. You know, we may not be voting for you, but if you can ensure that our incomes are increasing and that there's food on the table, we will support you. And climate change makes it more difficult for states to do that. You have the acute disasters, like maybe more severe flooding after a hurricane and the chaos that comes in the wake of that, but also chronic problems. I mean, just extreme heat that may ruin a harvest or you have more, the, the soil is saltier, so it's harder for people to make a living from agriculture or maybe the fish are moving north, so you no longer have those resources available to people. And 
Um, you know, we've seen drought, climate change is always just one factor in these things. That's why it's so difficult to identify. People talk about it as a threat multiplier. It, it's, it's almost never climate change by itself that leads to violence or, or undermines the state. But we've seen drought play a role in Syria, head of the civil war there. Water shortages in Iran and Iraq do not help with, with the problems there. And then environmentally inhospitable areas are difficult for states to control. I mean, look at a place like the Western Sahara, where there is very weak state control. And climate change does mean desertification, um, you know, salinized soil, uh, the, the zones after floods that are difficult to live in. It, uh, you know, next door to the Western Sahara, sort of in the Sahel, you see desertification pushing groups of farmers and herders into conflict. You know, the the herders um, have to move south in search of, of water, and they encounter the farmers and, and fight over land and water. Even in the U.S., um, you see groups like the Bundy Group or the Bundy Militia who've clashed with federal forces and indigenous uh, groups over water rights. There's even been some militia act- active after California forest fires doing nice things like handing out water, but they're wearing military fatigues and it and it who knows what, what type of activities they may do. So I just tried to draw a line between sort of biophysical changes and changes to the planet and changes to politics and how uh, violent groups may act. The creation of these inhospitable areas, the, the increasing kind of amount of space that, that isn't necessarily suitable for large-scale human habitation, I think um, maybe you could talk a little bit about this. It, it works in a couple of different ways. It, it not only, as you say in the piece, kind of pushes people into smaller and smaller spaces where they're competing more and more heavily for, for more limited resources. It also creates, I think, uh, a lot of territory that that these non-state groups can use to avoid detection or to avoid kind of uh, capture. I think this is something that we see in Syria with the remnants of Islamic State kind of operating in the Syrian desert out of the range of, you know, any kind of authority. It's sort of, I mean, it's it's enabled that group to survive even with the the loss of its kind of you know, main geographic bases or it's, it's caliphate, if you will. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the, the challenges that, that, uh, that this sort of poses for governments who are trying to deal with these groups? Yeah, I think you described that well. If an area is environmentally inhospitable, it's difficult to manage or control and it can be a refuge for violent groups. I mean, they take like the mountains between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Those are difficult to access and, and probably inhospitable to lots of agriculture. That has nothing to do with climate change. But then you could imagine other types of areas, a, a place that constantly floods or where there's just in, in incredible extreme heat. I mean, we're starting to see, you know, climate scientists talk about wet bulb temperatures, a temperature above which humans basically can't survive, even if you're you got a cold towel on your head or you're in cold water. And in an area like that, it's impossible for security forces to be active either. And so it's a place that it just is not controlled that that violent groups may be able to flee to and have power and leverage over the few people who do live in those areas. These are impacts that are, I mean, already happening on some level, but but will continue to happen, I think, at least for the foreseeable future, most prominently in, uh, I guess, what we could call global South countries where state capacity is already uh, you know, wealth is is lower, state capacity is is reduced. But you do talk about, and you mentioned the the you know what we've seen even in the United States in terms of water and the the Bundys and um, these sorts of groups kind of cropping up. But can you talk a little bit more about um, the the maybe inequality of 
the ways that these impacts kind of spread out around the world and, and what may happen, what it may look like when they really do start to take root uh, in wealthier global North countries, if, if this just continues unchecked? Yeah, two things there. There's a geographical inequality. I mean, it is mostly the countries in the tropics around the equator are the most exposed to many climate impacts, especially extreme heat, of course. And those are often poor countries who've done very little to contribute to the problem uh, by, by emitting greenhouse gas into the atmosphere. And they're very exposed. You can go back to some of the countries we were talking about in, this, in the Sahel, like Nigeria. So those countries are exposed. And then there's the even within countries, poor people are much more exposed to climate impacts. And this is something the IPCC talks about all the time, saying that you know disadvantaged groups are disproportionately affected. They rarely talk about the reverse of that, that rich people are quite well insulated from climate impacts. Um, if you're rich, you're unlikely to, to, to die in a heat wave or to pick up cholera or malaria. You're, it's, it may be easier for you to flee ahead of a flood. A lot of different groups have an interest in not mentioning that part of it. I mean, Climate activists don't want to frame this as something that's less of a concern for for rich people because they don't worry about rising rice prices. And even climate deniers would rather just uh, just avoid the problem altogether. So there's a, a big inequality here in terms of who's causing the problem and who suffers um, from its impacts. I mean, the global south, uh, yeah, that's one term for it. I mean, you see a lot of the some of the migration to the U.S. southern border is. It concerns people who are leaving countries like Honduras, which have suffered from from droughts and then, you know, agriculture is struggling. So, yeah, inequality is a big part of the story. Let's move into the second. Well, it's your third category. We kind of uh, uh, put the first two in one one question there, but in one topic. But but, but you talk about uh, resource conflicts and this is, you mm. know, uh, as governments start restricting certain kinds of resources, fossil fuels or the, the, the access to fossil fuels, you know, the clean energy transition creates, I think, winners and losers in different ways and different communities will be affected in terms of, uh, you know, they'll lose access or they may lose uh, the revenue from a coal mine or from an oil uh, deposit. Other communities are going to suffer from, you know, having to open up new cobalt mines or having to mm -hmm. you know, kind of uh, clear land for for solar panels or that sort of thing. This is, you know, like any other upheaval, it, it creates new winners and losers, and that destabilizes kind of the the system that's already in place. But can you can you talk a little bit about that phenomenon and and what we may be expecting here in terms of how violent groups could take advantage of that? Climate change means taking tough decisions. And I think it's okay to admit that even though taking climate action, uh, you know, exp expanding renewable energy and so on, that is, it's, it's a win-win in the long run and the median run. But there are some trade-offs between development, poverty reduction, and climate action. And so, you know, we don't see that much of this now, actually. We have the opposite problem. The governments, to meet their climate targets, will eventually have to... Uh, increase the price of fossil fuels or somehow restrict their production. That's not really happening in even in places like Norway and Canada for, for now, rich progressive countries which continue to drill for oil. But we do see, you know, until the energy crisis of the past two years exacerbated by the Ukraine war, we were seeing a, a small decline in fossil fuel subsidies and we're starting to see more carbon pricing around the world. And studies have found many riots associated with fuel price spikes um, in over the last 20 years. And just last year, we saw 
protests, not always violent, but in, in Sri Lanka, you know, storming the palace and in Ecuador and Ghana, these cost of living protests are often centered around um, energy and fuel or fertilizer. And so as we get carbon pricing, we get new environmental regulations, eventually restrictions on production, we might see in wealthier countries, the type of conflict we saw around Britain closing its coal mines in the 80s. And that was, of course, not for climate reasons. That was for ideological reasons and and, um, and social reasons. We but- here at American Prestige support the Thatcher government, so just please be careful. Um, no, it I, just see, it I, could- see, I see you have a poster of her behind you on the wall. <laughs> I don't know if the audience has the video. But- well, several. Uh, but thanks <laughs> for blowing up my spot. Uh, but Noah, has there been any real response in the global north to what's going on? Because from my day-to-day lived experience, it just seems like people don't even talk about it or recognize it, even relatively speaking, in Washington, D.C. That's partly true. So there, there's a lot of climate policy happening, but all of it is on... So there's, there's now massive spending going on in the global north to expand renewable energy and to improve climate adaptation. You've got the Inflation Reduction Act, you've got Europe's response to it. But you're right that on the, the part that actually matters, uh, adding renewable energy is a means to reducing how many fossil fuels we burn. And that's the part that nobody wants to do. That's the part that re- eventually reduces concentrations in the atmosphere. And you don't have... The countries in the global north are not willing to restrict production of fossil fuels to really make fuel so expensive that it would sharply reduce demand. We've seen that that's not really politically tenable. So, yeah, lots of things are happening. But if you look at the scoreboard of concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere or emissions per year, things continue to get worse. So that's uh, something to keep in mind. It strikes me as we're having as we talk about you know with the response in the global north that one of the ways to reduce the shocks of the transition and to reduce things, you know, to, to minimize things like uh, high fuel prices or fuel spikes that, that create unrest would be for the countries that benefited the most from the carbon economy and polluted, you know, caused this problem and are, you know, currently sitting in pretty good shape to finance the transition in the global South to, to, to make, essentially what I would say are reparations payments uh, to countries that are suffering from climate change. And we can talk about disaster-related payments. I think that's that's a somewhat separate issue. And you do talk about disasters as a, as a separate category. So we can we can table that for later. But but just in terms of like, we have the resources to to provide funding to countries in the global south to, to bolster a transition and, pre, you know, prevent this kind of stuff from happening, you know, this kind of upheaval, uh, at least at, at, at kind of the maximum level. I understand there is political resistance in the United States and other global north countries to sort of admitting that we've done anything wrong here. That's That seems to be the big uh, concern. But you could theoretically just call it something else and, and do the same thing. I, I, is there any kind of push for this uh, that's happening or any discussion of it that's that's happening at a serious level a- among kind of wealthier developed countries? Yeah, there is, Derek, and I'm glad you used the term uh, climate reparations because that's what we're actually talking about when we talk about uh, climate-related loss and damage in, in the UNFCCC jargon. Um, that is the idea that the countries most responsible for climate change, the rich ones, should make funds available to poor, more vulnerable countries. And this is separate from the idea of funds for mitigation and adaptation. You know, there's this $100 billion uh, per year target for climate finance that the that wealthy countries and the G20 have failed to hit. 
since 2020. This is meant to be separate. It's for the lives already lost and the homes already damaged. And at the last COP, um, the countries for the first time picked this up as a formal agenda item and they agreed to set up a fund for loss and damage. The problem is that it's it's an empty bucket, as people say. No one is sure who's going to put any money into it. And we've seen such struggles to provide funding for mitigation, which um, actually does sort of more directly benefit the countries providing the funds as opposed to, to, to loss and damage funding. So that climate reparations issue is a tricky one. Uh, but a big part of the whole, you know, the IPCC, the idea behind it is there's meant to be finance. There's common but differenti- differentiated responsibility. There's meant to be finance and climate-related technologies going from the wealthy countries to the poorer ones. And that also has not happened to the extent promised. So, and and I think we'll come to that later, but that's you know, anger at those responsible for climate change is another one of the factors that we'll come to. And I think that's going to be more and more of a factor. Some of the protests that for now are nonviolent may become more so. So let's move into uh, the next category of, of factors here, which have to do uh, with, um, again, kind of building on, on some of the stuff we've already talked about, but have to do with um people having to move um, migration this is going to be a huge issue as as more and more territory becomes uh, uninhabitable uh for what for whether it's for temperature or because of lack of water or you know any any number of other factors you talk about the potential increase in smuggling human trafficking uh but also the the ways that wealthy elites might try to isolate themselves from from everybody else and the role that uh violent non-state actors could play in that process can you talk a little bit about this the sort of human movement and and the you know even the cordoning off of of wealthier communities yeah we see climate change being responsible for emigration and it's always hard to untangle it you know how to what extent was climate change responsible for the failed harvest and uh you know, where there are other factors, but we see it playing a role. And the numbers are huge uh, in terms of how many how many migrants are expected over the, the next decades, or tens of millions or more. And unfortunately, with migration or irregular migration comes people smuggling. And that's already a big business on the southern border of the US and on the southern border of the EU. So that's the type of violence actor that can make millions of dollars from uh, trying to bring people into richer more livable countries, even at the risk of those people dying on the way. And then on the other hand, you see increasingly groups of militia trying to prevent this. I mean, it's sort of small scale for now. There's groups like the the Minuteman Project and the Three Percenters in the American South, the business and people sort of walking around Texas with guns, trying to make sure that no migrants come in. And then on the other side of it, I think the analogy I used in the the article was like that that science fiction movie Elysium, where the rich people are like, go to their own planet, basically. But you know, we see today private security forces around subdivisions and, you know, like in, in rich LA and Chicago neighborhoods. And we see after climate exacerbated disasters like Hurricane Katrina, private security forces. And you have to wonder if, if people who don't want new people coming into their community or want to be isolated from certain problems would just try to go off grid and hit your own renewable energy, your own water supplies and your own private guards. So those were the two types of violent state actors that I thought might have more opportunities because of climate change. And that, I mean, that brings a range of, uh, of possibilities into this in terms of what the, the violent non-state actor 
universe could look like under climate change. I mean, you know, you, you think about, um, you know, Va- the Wagner group or like these private mm-hmm. military companies who, who often right now serve state functions. I mean, Blackwater was doing U S security or diplomatic security. And, you know, there've been mercenary contractors used in Afghanistan. There were, you know, they were used in Iraq. The, the Wagner group does a lot on behalf of uh, the Russian government, but, but, as the states break down or as state capacity breaks down, you're saying we could see groups like this emerge who are not really functioning uh, on the state's behalf. They're functioning on the behalf of a, a small group, maybe a small community of uh, of wealthy elites. I think so. And to go back to the that other factor, the invidious restrictions on resources, you know, it's very unusual for a government to prevent the the use of a valuable resource, you know, for future benefits. Like, it's not something that happens in human history. And if governments really did take those difficult decisions, like if a future Nigerian government decides we're really going to stop the oil production uh, for, for the future, you know, our children and the planet, uh, there may be groups, you know, you, you mentioned Wagner or, or, or other groups that would help people extract that oil anyway. I mean, who's to say that those um, restrictions would be followed. There's lots of oil theft in Nigeria already. We obviously saw ISIS capture oil fields recently. So, uh, you know, even in a richer country like Canada, there's there's real tension between the East and the West over how Alberta extracts its oil resources. Um, it's not something you can just do with a few guys. It, it's, it's, it's sort of a high-tech operation, but this is could be one factor that leads to tensions, maybe even sort of rebellious activities or insurgents you know, you could have one insurgent trying to blow up the pipeline and the others trying to keep it open so they can extract the oil and sell it uh, undercover. I've got a couple of questions, Noah. Uh, so one of yeah. the major things that the United States is trying to do in Ukraine is to wean its European <laughs> friends, allies, clients off of Russian energy. So I was wondering what opportunities do you think that might present um, for violent non-state actors. Uh, And then uh, I was wondering, how does oil or energy play into the larger world of the criminal, the global criminal economy? How does it relate to drugs? How does it relate to sex trafficking and things like that? On the first question about Ukraine, I'm not sure where violent non-state actors come in there. I mean, it's been the, the switch away from Russian fossil fuels has been a big opportunity for American energy exporters. And the, all these LNG terminals coming online, uh, it's mostly American, it's foreign LNG has replaced Russian gas rather than renewables. But, but I want to think about that more. On, on the second point, what role does oil play? Uh, there is a lot of oil smuggling that goes on. I mean, we know that countries like Venezuela and Iran continue to export oil despite US sanctions, sometimes to countries like China that don't care, or some of it is just... Is, you know, um, oil may be relabeled as something else. I mean, we see, we see, so something, just to go back to Ukraine, we see, you know, with the sanctions on Russian oil or or price caps, you see uh, countries like India importing it and then refining it and then exporting it. And so there, you know, I don't have specific examples here, but these are revenue streams that are not very closely tracked and there's a lot of money in oil people don't tend to ask too many questions about where it's from as long as it's on the right tanker later so uh we know that there are that iran for example does have ties to violent on-state actors and that iran's oil revenue ends up there so that's maybe a model for what you're talking about your next you, you talk next in the piece about uh, kind of disaster 
aftermath, disaster relief. Um, and this is sort of, I think, building toward the the final point, which is just sort of the general anger that people uh, are are going to develop toward uh, people who have the, the people who have been responsible uh, for climate change, the the countries that have been responsible for climate change. But uh, on the road, there is sort of the the aftermath of climate related disasters, and, and in terms of um, anger at at loss, in terms of weakened state capacity. This is one area where I feel like we have seen a lot of non-state activity you know, in terms of coming in after disasters and either stepping in for a weak state and providing relief, providing services, uh, or and or uh, these groups kind of preventing governments from doing that, preventing governments from coming in and, and offering assistance. Maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the examples of, of this phenomenon that we're, you know, what, what we've already seen in, in this area. Yeah, so there are, I guess, two big reasons why a non-state group would use violence. The first is to influence the government, and the second is to step in in place of the government and and you, you replace it and, and, and accrue that power. I mean, I think I mentioned earlier, the, the, after the floods in Pakistan in, in 2010, the Taliban, you know, the state in Pakistan was unable to, to provide resources. The Taliban steps in, provides a lot of aid, and the president of Pakistan at the time warned that the Pakistan, sorry, excuse me, that the Taliban were train, taking in kids and training them as a terrorist of tomorrow. And I mentioned the narco aid in Mexico. I think another good example is a control of international aid. And, and if you read all the documents on climate change and climate security from, from NATO, or from the U.S. government, they all expect that there will be more humanitarian aid and disaster relief missions. So that we're talking about more aid going in. We're also supposed to have more aid for climate finance, for loss and damage. There's a possibility that some of it can be diverted. Uh, but the example I was talking about was how Al-Shabaab, which was in control of lots of Somalia after the 2011 famine, um, tried to get some of the aid at the beginning and then eventually just kicked out the U.N. Uh, aid workers, saying that they were the civilian face of the infidel forces. And, and made the situation even worse. So you have uh, situ- situations where people are desperate and maybe they've lost their livelihoods and would consider joining a group like Boko Haram. Or you have large flows of aid where there may be some corruption going on and violence state actors may get some of it and use it to expand their power. And then, you know, we're also just getting into the anger about climate adaptation. I mean, we're talking about what's happening right after disaster, but you can have people asking questions like, hey, why is that neighborhood getting a seawall? Or why are they putting stilts under those houses, but I have to move? And it is, in the US, for example, wealthier and often whiter people who do get the government resources. Or why is my neighborhood a no-build zone and the government's staying out and the insurers won't cover me, but that neighborhood over there is fine. These are really invidious um, topics. So let's get into anger more generally. This is your final point, you know, sort of. The, yeah, this the, is a pissed off podcast, so feel free. We are. We're pissed, pissed off. off. I mean, Jake, you know, insert constantly. some like sound thing like pissed off. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but uh, you talk about the possibility for or the potential for um, environmental protests to turn violent. This is something I would say we haven't seen very much of yet i'm kind of curious why we haven't seen very much of it uh yet given the 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 extent to which these things are already happening these effects are already being seen but it it strikes me that we've seen more violence directed at protesters or at activist groups and and 
you know, that's another it's sort of the flip side of the the same coin. But, uh, you know, what is what are we seeing in this this area and what might we uh, what might we be seeing in the future? It is perhaps surprising that there has been so little violent uh, climate activism. I think Ezra Klein had an article, if the world is burning, why aren't we doing anything about it or something to that effect, just asking this question as well. But I guess the key point is that the action isn't matching the rhetoric yet on, on either side. I mean, if governments are saying that this is an existential threat, they are, and that, you know, it's human civilization is, is under pressure, they're not taking commensurate action. And then even so far, the protests, these even groups of radical names like Extinction Rebellion, do not really take violent action. And as you say, it's usually environmental defenders who are injured by security forces in places like Colombia. So will this change? You know, violence to protect the local environment isn't new. Uh, we've seen in the, U- in the 90s in the, in the U.S., the Earth Liberation Front used arson to, to try to close a slaughterhouse and stop a Colorado forest from being cut down. In Niger, you've had militant groups attack pipelines and abduct oil workers, sabotage of copper mines in Papua New Guinea in the 80s. But that's all over. The the people are angry there about local pollution and who gets the resource, the the money from extracting these resources, who gets the profits. Climate protest activism is different because it's about what's happened to the planet, and people are peaceful. You know, Greenpeace will peacefully occupy an oil rig or the activists will hold hands in front of the German village that's going to be destroyed uh, for coal mining, as, as happened earlier this year. Or, you know, even the stuff that does get in the news is throwing paint on, high, on, on paintings or, you know, messing up fancy car dealerships. The question then is, is the radical flank coming? You know, people talk about this radical flank effect in, in the U.S. civil rights movement or the a women's liberation movement where a radical flank makes the moderates appear more reasonable. And then you governments are maybe presented with the choice of, okay, do I talk to the green party about shutting down the coal mines or the people in masks who are blowing up the pipelines? Um, the most prominent person writing on this is Andreas Malm with his book, how to blow up a pipeline. And the movie of that just came out as well. We also had Kim Stanley Robinson come talk to us at Carnegie in his book, ministry for the future. This is group, the children of Kali, and they do use tactics like, uh, kidnapping oil executives and taking down cruise ships. And I don't think it's crazy to imagine that this could happen in real life, that someone might uh, decide they want to take revenge for the grandmother who died in a heat wave or think that if they do, you know, there's no carbon tax. Well, here's an unofficial carbon tax when I blow up this oil refinery. And the U.S. is starting to talk about this too. You know, there's a, the 2021 National Intelligence Estimate on Climate Risks, and they talk about problems like Developing country demands for financing and technology assistance or greater demand for aid and humanitarian relief. Uh, they talk about these, frame these as threats to U.S. national security interests, and they expect them to play out mostly in diplomatic contexts, you know. But it's, it's I think, reasonable that this could also happen uh, on a smaller scale with small groups of aggrieved people taking action. So, and then there are parts of climate, more drastic climate mitigation, uh, or maybe this really adaptation, but you know, people talk about increasingly about doing more research into solar geoengineering, the idea that you can put particles in, in the atmosphere to help dim the sun, essentially, and reduce temperatures. If this was to be done unilaterally, that would also create openings for violence, and maybe people would, would even take violent action to stop it from happening. So as the responses get more extreme, you could see even more radical uh, responses to those responses. Frankly, what could go wrong if we if we just shove a bunch of stuff in the atmosphere to block the sun out? I mean, what what could really go wrong there? 
<laughs> Literally <laughs> a Simpsons plot. Um, so Noah, uh, I, I got a question, kind of a normative question. Um, so when I think about this, I always think about the end of the European aristocracy. And between 1890 and 1914, there were dozens, I may even be lowering the number, perhaps even hundreds, assassinations of the aristocracy. Is there a world in which governments take climate action, serious climate action, a climate action that'll affect the legitimacy of their regime, which depends particularly in the North Atlantic world on consumption, without direct violent threat. Because it doesn't seem like they're doing it without these threats. And if you read like Kim Stanley Robinson's book on on climate and all that stuff, he, he, he seems to suggest, he doesn't seem to, he does suggest that violent action will act, uh, necessarily be a stage in the process of forcing governments to do things like limit the uh, amount of um, travel by plane one is allowed to do, et cetera. So as someone who studies this, I mean, with not that much action having been done, do you think violence is actually necessary, not from your own perspective, but in terms of the process of political change? So can we see political change of this order without violence? That's a really, it's hard to find the right analogy. We for, never have, like, I would suggest. We've never had. I, I, think, I think that's right. That's what Andreas Malm says. That's probably right. And I think climate change is closer to, or maybe our addiction to fossil fuels is closer to, uh, the world's reliance on slave labor than it is something like addiction to tobacco or the you know the, the whole ozone hold the ozone layer where we had the Montreal Protocol we just had countries come together diplomatic agreement or you know social change to get rid of people who are not as addicted to cigarettes anymore that that took case occurred without large scale violence but I think that there is going to be some violence like one thing we do know from the IPCC reports we don't know exactly how bad warming is going to be but we do know that it's going to get worse right like we are locked in to worse warming than we have today because of the emissions already in the atmosphere and to achieve their goals governments would have to take quite drastic action um, to restrict consumption that's where you get into conversations on degrowth and things like that that I don't think will work but you know people would react really really poorly to the government which governments are not trying to do this, but to take away their pickup trucks and their hamburgers, right? And at the same time, if we are, if things don't improve by 2040, 2050, and warming is well above two degrees, I think people will take violent action. And there probably hasn't been a social change like this without it. I mean, of course, abolishing slavery required lots and lots of violent action, uh, eventually by the state. And so um, this is not to talk about the legitimacy of it, but just like looking at, at history it is to be expected that there will be some radical flank that changes the terms of debate. And, and you know, then the social side of it, like people are trying to remove like the social license to operate that oil producers currently have. Like, I think that will continue to diminish. And some people may argue that an oil industry executive is playing a similar role to a slave owner. Now, like that's a, that's a difficult analogy for a bunch of reasons, but these are the type of framings that people use to justify violence in the face of what is, to quote, I don't know, John Kerry, Joe Biden, Antonio Guterres, an existential threat. No, I, I, what this discussion kind of makes me think of is the mafia. Oddly enough, I, I, as we talk about uh, the roles that that VNSAs could play in, in you know, as climate causes breakdowns in state capacity as it creates more incentive to kind of create gated communities with security, private security forces. It feels like you could have these groups step in as almost quasi-governmental 
agencies, you know, running protection rackets, providing disaster relief, uh, these functions that would ordinarily be done by a state. But in, in a case where the state is broken down, you, you get groups that look an awful lot like basically the mafia stepping, stepping in and, and providing this stuff. Is that uh, one direction that you see, you know, as you, as you, again, as you said in the piece, the, the, the next century of violent non-state actors is going to look a lot different from the last one. Is this one way that you think things could be heading? Yeah, that's interesting to say, to, to compare it to the mafia. And maybe, you know, some of those groups, it might be more like a, a paramilitary group or like a National Guard unit that has the support of the government or, or militia, you know, as off-duty police officers. I think, so again, we're in a worst case scenario here. It may not get this bad, but if, let's see, you know, some, some tipping points are, are reached and the, the icebergs start to melt faster and faster, Amazon's dying back. There are places today, so places today are starting to advertise themselves as climate refuges, right? Like this, I think it's the mayor. So people talk about climate-proof Duluth in, in, in Minnesota, right? As a place, you know, ample fresh water and it's a temperate climate and you can move here. You, will, you won't have to worry about getting flood or fire insurance. Now it's sort of, sort of an attracting force, but I wonder if there are parts of it, again, this is a worst case scenario. I may not get this bad, but if it's 2060 and things are worse than we feared, uh, would residents of Duluth decide, you know what? There are actually way too many people coming in here. And I'm not sure that I want all of Houston or all of the people around California forest fires coming this way. This is the, we're not even talking about illegal immigration uh, anymore. And, and you know, let alone people coming from Honduras, but you know, maybe it's not as, it's not as serious as a paramilitary, but there's a guy at the edge of a subdivision, just making sure that no homeless people from, uh, from Southern Arizona are going to start hanging around there. So that's the type of small scale, violent action of just, yes, men with guns who are trying to help people get in on the one hand, keep people out of the of these climate oases, if you will. Along those lines, what as we get further and further into the era of military privatization, and as and we, you know, uh, we talked about private military companies earlier, but uh, I, I want to revisit this topic as, as you have more and more kind of functions of that, that used to be performed, let's say, by the U.S. military now devolving on contractors or as the you know, groups like Wagner uh, become more and more prominent in, in uh, conflicts around the world. These seem like the kind of uh, organizations that could very easily transition into this role as kind of gatekeepers or uh, protection racket, you know, running protection rackets or, or uh, that sort of thing. Do you feel like that phenomenon of, of increasingly privatized militaries is is contributing or will contribute uh, to what you're talking about in your piece. I think that I think it could. And you you brought up Wagner again. I have seen some reports of Wagner getting you know being more involved in mining efforts in Africa, and that's that's things like like cobalt, which we need for electric batteries or for gold. And we see actually you know we talked about mafia before. There's a lot of mafia are doing a lot of illegal mining in the Amazon, like mostly for gold, but in some cases for minerals linked to the energy transition. You see illegal mining in the DRC and in South Africa. And so these are, we talked about oil as a revenue stream for VNSAs. It's also possible to see minerals linked to, link to energy as, as resource streams. And th these are... You know, commodities are a great way to finance yourself for a group like Wagner. And um, governments may 
in these really fragile, climate-vulnerable states, governments may not want to take action themselves and give these tasks to contractors. Maybe even some of the humanitarian assistance disaster relief tasks can get farmed out and, and people can take control of the resources. So we're getting into a bit of uh, speculation here, but it's informed by what we're starting to see today. To kind of conclude the discussion then, I, I want to uh, you know, ask you for your view on what governments or people should be doing or be aware of moving forward in the hypothetical, I know this is, you know, really off the wall, but ju let's just say, what if humanity does not stop climate change in its tracks? We don't suddenly uh, stop using oil tomorrow as we need to do. Uh, let's just say hypothetically, we don't do that. Uh, and we get a world of two degrees warming, 2.5 degrees warming, kind of the, uh, as you said, the mid range of, of what used to be talked about, but still uh, fairly severe climate impacts. What, what are some things that you say in your piece? And this isn't a call to, to do something about climate change. If, you know, if people aren't already doing that, then there's no, uh, there's no hope of that. But, but there is a, uh, there, there do seem to be some things that, that could be done to prepare for, the ways that violent non-state groups will take advantage of, of climate change. What, what are some of those things? I think uh, I liked what you said about this, this focus on violent state actors. This isn't a call to finally look at the IPCC reports or not even for governments to spend more, uh, spend more money to combat violent state actors. I mean, it's, it's probably the case that we actually spend too much worrying about violent men with guns and not en enough about these other security th threats or even this framing that climate change will make it easier for the Taliban. I have some qualms about myself. I mean, we should worry about climate change because people will be hungry and, and die and suffer even at two, two, two and a half degrees. Um, so that you, you do have to worry a bit about this, you know, overly securitizing something and, and saying that this is the only reason we should care about it. What should governments do I think we can think a little bit differently about where we look for trouble and not just look at demographics or new extremist political groups emerging, but look more at the biophysical drivers of insecurity, like which regions are becoming less hospitable. Let's look at rainfall levels and weather forecasts and what bulb temperatures, you know, rely more on early warning systems to see where a disaster may strike next and what we can do about it. So it's, yeah, just, you know, we... We sort of thought we had beaten nature and it was lying there inert and it, it couldn't strike back. Well, it kind of is striking back now and the human victims of those natural disasters are going to strike back as well. So governments should look more at these sort of, we have these indexes and maps of, of uh, climate vulnerability and to, to overlay those with maps of what the you know, terrorist hotspots that they have now and just think more about uh, biophysical, geophysical drivers of insecurity and conflict. On that note, Noah Gordon, again, from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, uh, thank you. The piece, again, is How Climate Change Helps Violent Non-State Actors. We'll have a link to that in the show description. Thanks again for coming on the program, Noah. Thank you, guys. Great to be here.